Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 2 of this series of the Log on Mind Mental Health Podcast. This week, we spoke to Matthew Todd, former editor of Attitude magazine, and Straight Jacket, a book Elton John described as an essential read for every gay man. I really hope you enjoy the show. Hi Matthew, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um, so yeah, to start with, we always ask what your kind of personal and, and professional relationship to, to mental health looks like. Oh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, well, uh, I am in recovery uh, from drinking too much. And um, yeah, I've been on a journey of kind of dealing with all my own kind of personal you know mental health related issues um i suppose kind of properly from about 2008 which is when i went into recovery properly um and i used to be the editor of attitude magazine obviously and um wrote a big 10 page feature about uh the proportionately um statistically higher levels of depression anxiety addiction and so on and so forth that the lgbt community um has uh, in 2010, and which was still considered to be a very controversial thing to say at the time. Uh, it isn't now because people accept it. Um, and then I wrote a book called Straight Jacket, which has probably been the most successful non-fiction uh, LGBT book that's not by a celebrity for the last 10 or 20 years, I'd say. So, it's, yeah, it's been a big a big hit. Yeah, it was. I, I, I just finished reading it before talking to you, and it was, well, yeah, eye-opening, to, to say the least. Um, so what what kind of motivated you to write that initial article and, and can you go into a little bit more depth about those statistics you mentioned and and um, yeah, just explore those a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I grew up in South London in Croydon and I realised I was gay when I was about 10 or 11 and there was literally no one to, to help uh, or to give any support or even just to say it was okay because none of all the voices I heard around me you know, sometimes explicitly and sometimes just kind of the background noise of society was just that, you know, being gay was terrible. And it certainly wasn't even the way it is now. You know, there were, the, you know, you've got your Graham Nortons and your Alan Cars and your Zoe Lyonses and Sue Perkins and you've got out politicians and so on. And you didn't have any of that at all at that point in the early 80s. And of course, then came HIV and AIDS. And instead of being sympathetic to this terrible new, you know, disease that had emerged into the world, the the press, especially the tabloid press, especially Rupert Murdoch's press and the Sun, uh, kind of really went after gay men and portrayed them as kind of terrible demons, referred to people as gay terrorists at one point and tried to kind of suggest that we were like intentionally going around trying to give everybody HIV and AIDS. So it was a really terrible um time and in the book there's a chapter about the 80s actually and about how you know uh the sun would dig up kind of uh there's a, a tory councillor who said gays should be gassed and a vicar who famously said he would shoot his son if he if he had quote unquote aids so it was just a it was just a horrible I mean I just can't I always because when I'm when I'm going to feel this kind of pain I can't believe it and I, I tend to laugh because I just can't believe even now I've had this conversation you know thousands of times now and I still can't believe that they 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 did that. that so was, I was kind of sorry yeah, sorry I, to interrupt but that was something that really kind of shocked me was 
I obviously knew um, knew those things went on, but I didn't really realise the kind of venom and the the real nastiness and the kind of of the of the tabloid press. And I, I think I read in the book that that your parents read some of those papers. So, what kind of impact did it have on you seeing those headlines and knowing that that you were a young gay man? Well, yeah, I mean, my dad used to be a bus driver and he would bring home the papers, the, the, the previous day's papers. He would do these night shifts. And so I'd get up and in the morning there would be like the sun and the, or the news of the world or whatever it might be, the people and the Daily Mail and uh, would read them, read those papers. So it was just, and the thing about tabloids, the, the clever thing they do is they really make you feel like you're kind of part of their world, like you're one big family and all our values are all the same. And that's how they kind of, you know, get you in. And so they were saying, well, part of our values are that gay people are just awful, terrible, you know, demonic people trying to disrupt and bring down society. So that I knew I was gay and I didn't feel very good about it after after reading that. And I mean, that's an understatement. You know, I, I just tried to push it down continually. I felt like it was completely, you know, unacceptable. And I thought about suicide quite a lot and spent a lot of time in tears, a lot of time, you know, praying that I would change, a lot of time just feeling like, it wasn't acceptable to my family that maybe I should run away. I mean, it was absolutely horrendous and I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. And I think my addict addictive problems started then. Um, talk about, you know, disassociation in the book and kind of pushing those feelings down. And at first it was kind of, I'd say probably it was like eating and through fantasy, so like an entertainment. So kind of, yeah, I was quite a chubby uh, kid because I was just kind of eating sugary things and, carby things to just kind of dull the, the pain um you know that phrase comfort eating you know because it gives you comfort to eat certain types of foods so I was doing that not consciously but that's just what I was doing and I was um obsessed with films and tv and and, and things so was absolutely obsessed uh with the Wizard of Oz which is a cliche but I, I really was and just this idea of you know disappearing off into a fantasy world and I was obsessed with Superman had a massive crush on Christopher Reeve and kind of thought uh you know, wanted this kind of hero to rescue me and take me away from all the kind of like fear that I felt. Um, so it was just a horrible, horrible time. And then eventually I started going to the theatre in London and um, met, uh, you know, some gay people and then eventually came out to a youth group when I was 16. And I think I was lucky in lots of ways to come to go to a youth group because lots of kids, even now, you know, like kids now, they don't get very much support and it's considered to be this huge taboo to talk about the fact that young people start to realise that they have a sexuality. And, and I am someone who, you know, advocates for supporting kids, but it's the whole point is not to make them have sex, it's actually to try to stop them from having inappropriate sex, for them to be in a safe place, for them to wait until they're older. Whereas I think that was just a case in the papers in the last couple of uh, weeks where a young 14-year-old boy was uh, uh, on Grindr and, and, and meeting up with, uh, uh, you know, adults and having sex with adults. And th th there's no, often there's no support. There's no other option because even today, you know, some schools are supportive. And just, you know, I think we just need, it's about just saying to kids, it's okay to be who you are and giving them, you know, education and saying, you know, it's, you have to wait to have sex until you're older, until it's safer and you can make adult decisions. So it's just, yeah, for me, that was just, you know, it was a catastrophic, awful time. But I was very lucky because I think I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, maybe taking my own life, maybe ending up in a public toilet, which is a, co a common thing that, that, that people did because they felt there were no other options, which is obviously an incredibly unsafe thing to do, especially when you're very young. 
Um, so, you know, it was really, I felt very let down by society because I didn't choose to be gay. It's just, it's in, you know, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's just, you know, it's a, a natural part of me. So how, how old were you when, um, when HIV and AIDS started to be, become more prevalent and talked about and, and what was, I suppose, what was the impact on, on you and, and your mental health, um, but also in the kind of, in the kind of wider community, I, I think you wrote about how it kind of really, it really made you feel guilty about, about your sexual relations but and sexuality and, and, and kind of that issue of shame. So how, how did it make you feel, those things? Yeah, I think it's interesting that, that pride is the word for, you know, that's been associated with, you know, the LGBT community, the gay community. And it's, I think that is no coincidence that word has arisen because we are made to feel shame and, and ashamed. And I certainly did, although I wouldn't have necessarily intellectually thought I'm ashamed, but I think the emotional kind of shaming was there and the kind of damage was was there kind of, kind of in a subconscious way. So, I mean, for everybody in the early 80s, I mean, AIDS and HIV and AIDS was a terrible and terrifying thing. You know, there's no getting away from it. It was a, t- a terrifying time for everybody. Um, but it was kind of, and it, and it was disproportionately affecting gay and bisexual men. There's no getting away from that either in, in the West. But because it was just handled in such a terrible way by, by the government, but also, but mainly through the, through the media, you, you just, I remember they used to say that, that gay stood for got AIDS yet. So when you're 14 years old and you're or 15 years old and you're kind of hearing that and you, you're just thinking, I don't want to be gay, I'm trying not to be gay, and I'm being told I'm going to... The, the media was like, you're going to either be a paedophile or you're going you're to die of AIDS. And that was what the media was kind of saying. So who, who, can, who, who can grow up feeling good about themselves when that's what you're hearing from, from everybody? You know, no, no books, no, you know, that there's kind of books now, you know, young adult fiction and stuff like that and advice books and things, but there weren't at that time. So there was literally nobody to turn to. It was, I wouldn't have wished it on my worst enemy. So, of course, when you do come out, it's very hard to go from this world of being told it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong and then suddenly oh you come out and there's suddenly gay people and you start going on the gay scene and you make gay friends and everyone's going and the way gay culture does it it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful and waving the pride flags so you've gone from to the one polar opposite to the next polar opposite it's like being on a roller coaster and i didn't know what to think who i was what was safe what i should be doing who to talk to who to be friends how to live a life how to have relationships how to date how to have a sexual relationship. I mean, it just was, um, yeah, I mean, I'm still, it's definitely, I mean, it's completely, it, you know, it, it was a sledgehammer to my sense of identity and sense of self growing up. And it's, you know, the, it's an ongoing thing even today to, to, to kind of, you know, keep the pieces together because it was, it was a really uh, terrible way to grow up. If we fast forward a little bit to, to, the point in the book where you, you write about kind of your your lowest point which was you know I think at that point you were editor of Attitude you know a massive magazine kind of from the outside very successful um, and I think you were talking about mm. you went to interview Daniel Radcliffe and you kind of well you, you can tell the story better than me but how did you what happened to make you reach that point and how did your life change after that point to kind of get you to the stage where you where you wrote the book and, and all of that stuff? 
Well, I think by that point I had gone into recovery and I was trying, I was kind of trying to, um, or I had to, was learning about all of these things. And of course, when you do start learning about some of these things, it, it can be quite triggering and overwhelming because I've been searching for answers from everybody, you know, for years from, you know, mainstream therapists at university and to my GP who didn't have a clue, didn't have anything to say, couldn't say anything about, you know, being gay or sexuality issues or whatever. And then through gay therapists, through sexual health centers who also didn't have a real understanding of, of these issues at, at that point. So when I did start to understand, I thought, okay, I need to try and stop drinking because that was one of the main ways it was manifesting we did it I was editor of Attitude very successful magazine dealing with lots of huge superstar celebrities and we finally secured an interview with Daniel Radcliffe who was obviously the star of Harry Potter which is the biggest kind of family brand in the world certainly at that point and it was a really massive deal for us and the only time he could do the shoot was on a Sunday morning I think at nine o'clock in the morning so I thought not you know normally the weekend it would be crazy for me so I thought okay I'm not going to drink all day long and I remember I went to the theatre went to the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush saw a play um, came home, I thought, I'm not going to drink. And then um, I did, I thought, I'll, I'll have one. <laughs> and of course, went crazy. And the next thing I remember, I kind of woke up the next morning late for the shoot. And uh, it was horrendous. And, that, and you know, his uh, kind of press person, who I know well now, actually, who was absolutely lovely about it. And you know, I said, oh, I'm not well, I'm not well, I'm not well. And they were like, oh, fine, don't worry, go home. And, you know, and in the end, it was fine. The photo shoot happened. There were people there from the magazine and ended up doing the interview like a week later. And he was absolutely lovely and very understanding about it and, and has since talked about his own drinking issues as well. Um, so it was, that was a real, that, that was the one time where it kind of really affected my work. And I thought, oh, dear, this is a, you know, this is a proper, a real problem that that has to be addressed that was a real big rock bottom moment for me so yeah you must you realize that that was the a, a place of a real idea what changed in your life after that what help did you seek what did you find helpful um, i mean a, a, key, a kind of key turning point for me was meeting a gay therapist a guy called david smallwood who said to me um of course and I'd met other gay therapists before, but didn't understand it, but he just understood addiction. And he said, of course, you're screwed up. You're, you're gay. And then went on to say, it's not that you're gay in itself. It's the fact you, you, if you, if you are gay, you grow up in a kind of world that is hostile, a society that invalidates you and shames you at every opportunity. And it seems like a really obvious thing to say now, but it wasn't then. It was still taboo and people didn't understand it. And so it was a real light bulb moment for me to realize, ah, oh, right, of course, of course, that makes sense. So I started to then... Uh, he gave me a book called The Velvet Rage, which, which no one had heard of at the time. I mean, I, I was the editor of Attitude, the biggest gay magazine in Europe at that point. Never heard of that book. It wasn't really stocked in many bookshops. So I wrote a big 10-page feature about it in 2010. And, and then that book was stocked everywhere, flew up the top of the uh, the gay Amazon charts and stocked everywhere. Now, you know, I'd say a huge amount of gay people have read it now across the world, which is great. Um, yeah, and then I felt like I just I wanted to, I was carrying on unpicking all my different issues and and trying to work out, you know, what what the hell was going on and how it manifested in me and, and lots of my friends and people I've worked with and famous people as well and decided I should write my own kind of, you know, book about uh, my thoughts about it and taking into account all the kind of lots of changes of the last a uh, couple of decades, you know, like social media and the internet and apps like Grindr, which is the most popular gay, quote unquote, dating app. 
um, and the drugs problem. You know, at the same time, I was writing about all of that. This big kind of drugs problem was exploding in London and in big cities across the UK and across the world. Crystal meth in in, in a drug called G, which is a very very dangerous drug, which is disproportionately used by gay and bisexual men. Um, and talking about all of those issues, and other people started to talk about the drugs problem as well. So that that became something that people came to to start to understand a bit more saying that you know it's it's a very it's a very difficult these are difficult conversations to have and they're very sensitive conversations and it's very easy to play to a kind of homophobic agenda so I think it was helpful that I was talking about my own problems and my own experience so it wasn't just saying you know wagging a finger and saying you're all doing terrible things and that's that's not the case at all either you know you know a huge 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 numbers of LGBT people are, are thriving and living wonderful healthy happy lives and also massive numbers of straight people. In terms of numbers, there's far more straight cisgendered people who are struggling and have mental health problems and addiction because there's far more of them. But in terms of proportions, uh, statistically, we, yeah, we do have uh, higher levels of, of these problems. And I think, you know, it's, it's sensitive, difficult subject to talk about, but, you know, we all, all of us, whoever we are, we all deserve to have a chance of, you know, dealing with, some of the things that society throws at us and and of course as well you know we'll always say that there are many reasons why young people could be traumatized it's not used of course it's not you don't have to be gay to grow up feeling not very good about yourself absolutely so who was the kind of intended audience for the book and, and what was the reaction what was the reaction generally to it and and what was the reaction in the lgbt community to it well, I mean, I write from my perspective, that I, you know, any perspective that I can, which is of, you know, uh, a white gay man, but uh, but they interviewed, you know, lots of different types of people, you know, people of colour um, and, you know, some women. Um, so the book was a was a huge success. And it's funny because I had people say to me, oh, my God, you can't say these things and people are going to hate you for saying it and they might come up, you know, beat you up in the street. And it's not been received that way at all. You know, I, I get messages every week from people all over the country all over the world saying you changed my life you've explained it you've saved my life someone someone very early on wrote me a thank you letter from uh that was from their parents because he was really struggling and uh said that the book helped him understand and his parents feel like it saved his life which is absolutely in- incredible um and it got great reviews and but it's weird because it didn't get a huge amount of press attention and i think that's partly because I think some of the gay press found it uh, were a bit intimidated by the idea because at that point it was still something that was considered a taboo thing to say because it's, you know, it's kind of looking inwards and talking about some of our problems as a community. Um, and also I think the mainstream, the, the straight mainstream world also didn't, well, I think there's a certain amount of, let me say it's not necessarily homophobia, but a lack of interest. There is a lack of interest, you know, like I think gay people are, are kind of used by the mainstream media, you know, as, you know, TV presenters and comedians and, and hosts and chefs and fashion experts, but they don't really have an interest. The mainstream doesn't really have an interest in our real lives and talking about some of the issues that we might have, or you know, in our kind of mental or social kind of lives as 3D rounded human beings, which is really frustrating. But also, some maybe some of the people who were more sympathetic didn't understand and thought it was coming. No one's ever said this, but this is my perception. They thought. Well, I don't understand why gay people would have high levels of, you know, uh, drug misuse, and that's a negative thing to say, so we won't say it. So there's just been a massive, massive lack of interest from the mainstream. So the book has really done well through word of mouth, you know, people 
often people say to me they bought five, they've read it, and then they bought five more copies and to their friends and stuff. So that that's been yeah very amazing to and humbling to hear that. If you feel comfortable talking about it, what are the kind of you talk about the higher levels of of issues that 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 gay people experience? What are they and and were you able to throughout the book were you able to explore obviously it's incredibly complicated any mental illness is incredibly complicated but were you able to explore why there were those higher levels of of certain issues in, yes i mean i think the the i think the underlying thing is anxiety i think it's a, a kind of a fear and a feeling of being hyper vigilant and not being safe i talk about um uh you know in the book about some of the work like people like john bradshaw um and therapists like that and there's a very famous study, which I think is is much more well known in America, but not here, which is the um, Adverse Childhood Experience Study, which was done by, I can never pronounce the name properly, but Kaiser Permanente, I can't, I can't ever pronounce that name properly, in Oakland, in California, where they was a health um, uh, facility where they... Ha they treat thousands and thousands of people over decades and decades and decades. So they have access to huge amounts of records, people's health records, and they did a study to see if whether or not, uh, if, a ch if a child had uh, the more, if it had lots of different bad things that would happen to a child, a young person growing up, if that impacted their uh, mental health and their self-esteem and whether or not they had addiction issues and so on when they were older. So they basically wanted to look at all these children's records to see if adverse experience impacted them. So an adverse childhood experience could be a multitude of things. It could be having a family, like losing a parent. It could be parents divorcing. It could be far more serious things. Well, I mean, all of these things are serious, but you know, uh, sexual abuse or emotional abuse or physical abuse. I think sometimes they even, uh, some of the kids that they that they studied had, had been in New York at the time of 9-11 and that, and that counted. Um, and they found that, again, it seems obvious now, they found that the more of those ACEs, adverse childhood experiences a child had, the more likely they would have anxiety issues, suicide ideation, substance misuse issues, alcohol problems, body image issues, self-harming issues. And they thought when they did the study, they expected the thing that would be the most damaging, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing, which was uh, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse. They thought that would be the most damaging, but actually just by, uh, by a small margin, what they found did the most amount of damage was what they called chronic, chronic recurrent humiliation. So the idea of that an adult saying to a child, you're no good, you're bad, you're wrong, you're shit, you're ugly, you know, the kind of things that lots of us have experienced. And I'm sure, you know, we've all had experiences behind and being in a supermarket and seeing a parent saying horrible things to a child, that kind of negative drip, 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 you know, you're not very good. Um, and I would say that that is, chronic recurrent humiliation is kind of what LGBT people grow up with. When I said earlier on about when I was growing up being told by society, being told by politicians, being told by the media, it's not okay to be who you are, what you are is not acceptable. I, I think it's very hard for LGBT people to grow up without experiencing that chronic recurrent humiliation. And there's a another therapist, a gay therapist called Dr. Joe Court, and he says in one of his books that 
what uh, LGBT kids go to is um, covert cultural child abuse. And I would say that's that's definitely true. I mean, things uh, it is changing clearly in certainly in places like the UK. And I think the UK is clearly one of the best places in the world to be gay. Um, but it's still something that, that I think lots of kids here experience. And I think around the world, it can be incredibly difficult. Of course, you know, there's 70 something countries where it's illegal to be gay still in some countries where you can receive the death sentence for even for consensual gay sex. So um, it's a serious problem that still exists today. Um, and yeah, then now there are more and more studies. I mean, gay people, LGBT people have been left out of kind of academia to some degree, but the people haven't looked in depth in many cases at our experience and our, and our lives. But there are more and more studies now that, that show that yes, we have high levels of drinking problems, high levels of body image disorders, high levels of drug misuse, high levels of suicide ideation. So it's hardcore, it's, it's not good. And, but the positive thing is that we are talking about it and you know, there are ways out of it, you know, as, as I'm sure, of course, you know, and you know, we know, you know, therapy and various different things that people can do to, to, to address these issues. And again, of course, I don't want to be completely bleak saying, if you're gay, if you're LGBT, you're going to have all these terrible problems because that is not the case. And sometimes people might have a problem at some point in their life and then they work on it or they grow out of it or they move through it. So it's not a bleak story or it's a story of, you know, hope. I, I just think that we, uh, we just need to have these discussions so that we can help ourselves and help our friends and our family and each other, whether, you know, gay, LGBT, straight, whatever you know whoever we are to all of us to help to help each other absolutely and um you kind of touched upon the help that was available there and a kind of theme that that i picked up on throughout the book was that one of the 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 most effective things that we could possibly do was uh when we collect data forms correct me if i'm butchering this but when you collect data forms for stuff like the nhs is asking about uh sexuality on there so why like I said, correct me if I've completely misunderstood that, but no, 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 no that's right. Yeah, it's just it's just so we know. And I I understand. I remember when I first started hearing people at the NHS and stuff, people talking about saying collecting sexual orientation data, and you'd see a lot of you know people in like Daily Mail type, uh, you know, articles saying, oh, what's my sexuality got to do with it? Why you shouldn't be talking about sexuality? Who cares? Why are you making everything about sexuality? But it's not because of some obsession with it. it. It's just so we can get some stats. We can look at the stats to see. You, you'd imagine if if people have if LGBT people have higher levels of anxiety, you'd imagine they might have uh, higher levels of smoking, and then higher levels of the diseases that that come from smoking, or high, higher levels of uh, if we have eating disorders. Maybe to, to look at how that shows up in the stats. It's just so we can all we can know, and it benefits everybody ultimately because we can start to understand and have a wider understanding. And I don't think these things are very well understood still. Um, just just the just the way you know um, the way you grow up, how how it affects people, and I think that's a, that's a benefit to everybody. It's really interesting when I you know I'm in recovery myself, and I go into recovery groups and meet so many different types of people. And there are specific LGBT recovery groups, but also I go to mainstream ones. And you hear straight people talking about their experience in those groups. And they've often had very, very similar experiences that have brought them to have the same similar issues, maybe a drinking problem, you know, that, that I have had. So it's really interesting. So, it, so if we understand all of this more, it can benefit all of us and, and help all of us. So it seems like a, a no-brainer to me. Yes, yeah, so outside that, that kind of um, uh, 
outside that, what other specific things would you point to, I suppose, particularly young gay people that are struggling? What particular things do you think are out there to help them? And are they necessarily things that are specific to to being gay or, or are there are those mainstream things like I don't know CBT generic therapy are those just as helpful um well yeah, it's, it's complicated I think you know all of those things do help that's so a CBT you know I've got friends who say that CBT really really helped them but there are added complications because you know lots of therapy therapists aren't really trained to understand sexuality generally and they certainly aren't trained about you know diff, different sexualities you know homosexuality or bisexuality or whatever so, so so there are some therapists who are really really great the worst case is you you meet therapists who literally treat you know anything other than heterosexuality as a problem in itself and we know there's still conversion therapy in the world there's still therapists who are very homophobic and transphobic and I wrote an, an article for therapy to the therapy today magazine recently and um, was talking to people about their experiences and there's so many negative experiences that people have um, but things are are slowly changing and people are talking about it a bit more and podcasts like this really really help um but but there are sometimes specific issues so for instance you know some gay bisexual men may be having you know kind of sex lives that aren't the same as you know mainstream straight people so sometimes if someone's got a drug problem or maybe taking drugs and going on a kind of four or five day kind of session high on drugs and sleeping with lots of different people they can feel really deeply ashamed about talking to a straight person who might not understand that sometimes they, they may be sympathetic sometimes they might not so I think sometimes it can be really really beneficial to talk to a therapist an LGBT therapist or an LGBT friendly therapist who just will not be judging and 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 will understand and also not be saying well you've got to just live you know a life exactly the same you know, straight people are very conventional, monogamous life, and some gay people do want that, and some gay people do, you know, might be helpful to hear that, but it's about having all options, because lots of gay people don't want to have, you know, conventional relationships. It's very, it is very, very complicated, um, but I think in terms of young people, I think, you know, there are more and more support groups and helplines, and there's kind of, you know, LGBT centres across the country, not as many as there should be, not as well funded as there should be, there's, but there's groups like Antidote in London, which is the UK's only LGBT specific drugs and alcohol service, which can be really, really helpful for people. 5016 Street, Sexual Health Centre in Soho, which is an incredible, incredible organisation, which has therapy and, and support there. But I think one of the main things is that for for the, the gay community, the LGBT community to, to just understand that you know that a lot of these issues might pop up in amongst ourselves or people that we know not necessarily but they might they might do and just to be on the lookout and to understand and to be supportive and to help and to say if someone's got a drink problem to have to be able to support them with it and maybe point them in the right direction and if or, or drugs or whatever it may be so it's about us looking after each other I mean you know gay culture is very kind of like shiny and high kicking and <laughs> camp and lots of entertainment and you know RuPaul's Drag Race and Lady Gaga and all of this kind of stuff and and I just think that you know the language and the understanding of recovery and addiction needs to be as much a part of LGBT LGBT culture as as all that is. Yeah um something you wrote about that that helped you in the book and actually um if anyone's seen the 
the the Elton John film that clearly helped him as well is is Alcoholics Anonymous, which is not something that I've actually ever spoken about on on the on the podcast before. So people might not understand what it is and and how it helps and the very specific process of it. So can you kind of detail a little bit about that and explain explain why that helped you? Yeah, um, I mean, w- with twelve uh, step groups. Um, so Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, uh, Crystal Meth Addicts Anonymous, there's a 12 step group of many, many gamblers anonymous, uh, overeaters anonymous, there's, there's loads and loads of them. They are obviously the word anonymous, you're meant to not say <laughs> publicly if you're part of them. The idea being that if, I don't know, say Russell Brand, Russell Brand, I think, has, has talked about, yeah, he has talked about um, uh, using them. The idea being, if he was to then slip off the wagon and everyone knew he was in AA, that is not going to reflect well on AA. It might put people off when maybe AA might save their lives. So I think 12-step groups uh, are, very, are all run all over the world. They're probably in, they're in, they're, well, they're in, certainly in the UK, they're in all big cities and towns. And they're, they're, they're everywhere. They're free. Um, so you just go along. And uh, it's about... Uh, I think the, the, the thing that is really good about them is that you're not going to see a therapist who may or may not completely understand the problem. So let's say you've got a problem with a drug problem. If you're talking to a therapist, if the therapist doesn't have a drug problem, they're not, or has never had a drug problem, they're, they're not going to necessarily understand exactly what it's like. So the, the strong point people would say about 12-step groups is that if you go to Narcotics Anonymous, you're sitting there with other people in recovery who have had drugs problems, and a lot of them will have been dealing with them, or will be sober, and will have moved away from it, so they will know exactly what it is like. So the idea being that it's one person with an addiction problem helping another person with with an addiction problem. And also the great thing about them, if you're seeing a therapist, say you're seeing a therapist on a Tuesday afternoon, you feel great after that. Wednesday, you still feel great. Thursday, you feel a little bit less great. Friday, you're not feeling so good and you're desperate for some help. And you might be thinking, oh my God, I might start using again. You still have to wait most of the time to see a therapist again the next Tuesday. Whereas with 12-step groups, they're everywhere. You can just go to another another 12-step group and, and, and just get some more help. And I, and, I, and I think that's the great thing that they are very, very social. They give they, the Addiction comes from like, you know, being isolated and, and not connected to, to other people. And they, they reconnect you to other people. And I think that's one of the key things they do. They're not for everybody. Lots of people don't like them. There's a kind of, they talk about higher power in it. And a lot of people go, oh, my God, they're religious and I hate them. But, you know, it was, it was funded by, created originally by religious people. But that I, I just think there's a phrase that you can say, fake it to make it. You do not have to believe in God. You do not have to be religious at all to do it. It's just part of it. You take the bits that work for you and you leave the rest. It's up to you to decide if you want to be part of that or not. To me, the, the strong point of them is the fact that they're social and that they're everywhere and that you can drop in and go to them all the time. And, and uh, like I say, they're not for everybody, but I've definitely seen them save people's lives and lots of people where they've tried, you know, uh, uh, seeing therapists and uh, haven't really been able to get on top of their problems. I've seen them go to 12-step groups and completely change their lives. So uh, I think they should always be part of, I think people should just know that they're there and, and for people to make up their own minds. And I think a lot of the therapeutic community can be very down on them. And I just think addiction can be really, really serious. It can kill a lot of people. I've seen it kill people, you know, 
before I went into recovery myself, since I've been in recovery. So we are talking about really serious issues. So if there are things that may help people, let's just at least make people aware that they are there and that they work for lots and lots of people. Like Elton's very famously, you know, talked about being in AA and he's, I think, just turned 31 years sober. So, you know, for lots of people, they really are life-saving. And I, I think they should always be part of the mix. Yeah, and from the way I understand it, the 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 idea of kind of giving over to a higher power, that doesn't necessarily have to be one prescriptive God. It could be something that you feel is a higher power. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a religious thing, which may put certain people off going. Yes, it's, it's kind of compl- complicated, but I, I think part of the problem with addiction is that I, I think it stems from feeling when you're young, usually, or being overwhelmed, not feeling safe. And so you, everything becomes about how can I make myself feel safe and getting some control over the way I feel. I don't think people consciously think this, but I think this is, I, I think this is what happens. So people start to realize if they, you know, if they're feeling very anxious, they drink, they're going to feel less anxious at the beginning. And eventually that starts to make them more and more anxious. So whatever thing it is, starts giving them some uh, sense of control. And I think you can become very kind of um, self-centered, not in a judgmental way, but it's just, I think when you're in that addictive place, you're just so traumatized and just so thinking, I've got to make myself feel better. I've got to make myself feel, feel better. And I think the concept of a higher power is just reconnecting you to the fact that you're not the only person in the world. The world is a big place. There's lots of other people. So some people can, can think about their family as, as a higher power, or sometimes they, talk, they think about the group that they're going to as a higher power or the planet as a higher power, just understanding that there is something bigger than you. And, you know, just you constantly just focusing on yourself the whole time is not always the most helpful way to, uh, to, to get out of those addictive problems. So that's kind of what it's about. Yeah, that's a good good explanation. Um, so I want to try and finish on, uh, I suppose, more of a positive note, and that's the touching on on what you were speaking about about HIV and AIDS earlier. Um, is the kind of um, the way that's treated today, and and how much that's improved? I know, I know this kind of personally because um, my dad's a doctor, and he part of his speciality is he runs uh, an HIV clinic and. And talking to him, the kind of medicine that's available now and the the prevention is 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 so much improved. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and and whether the kind of stigma, I suppose, around HIV and AIDS has changed and and whether that's a positive thing. Well, it's obviously a positive thing, but you know, I mean, yeah, no, sure, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Yes, when, when HIV and AIDS first came into the world, it was just, you know, it was so devastating and it was a death sentence. If you got HIV, you could be dead within a few years. And uh, now we have the, the drugs which we've had since the mid-90s, which keep people alive, which give them kind of pretty much an equal kind of, um, you know, life expectancy as anybody else, which is fantastic. It's completely radically changed, uh, you know, the, the whole situation. Um, there's a medication called PrEP, which is a pill you take every day, which stops you from contracting HIV um, and people who are on medication who are undetectable which means they've got an undetectable level of virus in their blood they can't pass on HIV it's believed now so um, you know the situation has completely radically changed and yes there is far less prejudice I mean it's, a, it's an incredible thing I never thought I, I would see it. you know when I came out it was this kind of terrible it was this kind of like you know haunted thing you know that 
you know, who amongst your friends were going to catch it, who who would die. And now we're in a place where, you know, got quite a lot of friends who are HIV positive. And it's not even, I can't even, couldn't tell you which ones are, which ones aren't, because they just take their pills and their life is, you know, is the same as anybody else's. So it's an incredible, there's been incredible changes. And um, I think that, you know, it's not perfect. And I know people have said to me that sometimes they face prejudice, but I think, I think actually the credit where it's due, the, 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 the gay community, have done amazing things in you know trying to educate themselves and be understanding and and supporting what each other in 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 that respect i still see people i've got a friend who lives in i think northern ireland and sometimes because he's very out about his hiv positive status he sometimes gets abuse but i feel like that is radically reduced from the way it used to be so so things are are getting better yeah, to what to, to kind of finish, we always ask how you look after your, your mental health at the moment. Well, that's an interesting one because it's, I mean, like, I think for me, it's about like maintenance of kind of, you know, uh, going to recovery meetings. And, you know, I talk in the book about just trying to do positive things. So actually, one of the major things that's really been helpful to me is trying to have relationships with people like with neighbours and speaking to my neighbours and talking to them as an old lady who used to, she sadly died a couple of years ago, but I had a really good relationship with her and we'd get her shopping and that was really helpful because it took my mind off from just obsessing about my own issues. So I think doing things for other people is a really, really helpful thing. That said, you know, the world is in a really bad state and I really worry a lot about climate change and there's nothing in the mental health book about that. So there are still challenges, but um, I think we just have to do what we do to just try and keep ourselves as, as you know, uh, balanced and uh, positive and, you know, healthy as much as we can. But also to acknowledge that sometimes, you know, there are problems, you know, especially during the pandemic, you know, I've been stuck on my own for a long time here. And uh, that can be really challenging and really difficult. But for me, uh, you know, I haven't I haven't had an alcoholic drink for I think about seven seven and a half years now, so that's a real kind of mainstay of my my own recovery. Congratulations! Um, so yeah, where can we find out more about your writing, the book, um, just the general work that you do? Uh, well, Straightjacket is available from all good bookshops and online in the, all the usual places. Though better to buy it in a bookshop. <laughs> Uh, also got another book called Pride, which is the story of the LGBTQ equality movement, which is really, uh, 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 I think, I'm proud of it. It's a, it's a good thing that educates young people just about the history, which part of the problem is that we're not taught about our collective history. So I think that that's a, a helpful and a positive thing to have out there. Um, and I've got a website, which is matthewtodd.net. Brilliant. Matthew, thank you so much. That's been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. hope you enjoyed that episode just a quick note to say that although things i discussed with the guests we may find helpful we're not trained medical professionals if you're struggling with your mental health please contact your gp or speak to an organization like samaritans on 116 123